Welcome to the Reed Connected Podcast, where brother and sister hosts, Dr. Gerald Reed and myself, Alexis Reed, team up to discuss different facets of learning and well-being together and with other experts in the field. This podcast is about presenting ideas, concepts, strategies, and skills that are relevant to the primary topics of mental health, well-being, performance psychology, education, learning, and executive functioning. In this podcast, we aim to focus discussions through the lens of helping individuals determine best paths for themselves throughout the lifespan. In particular, we'll focus on three aspects of an individual's development, which are a secure self, feeling secure within oneself and life, a connected self, feeling connected with others and a larger purpose, and a strong self, feeling capable to efficiently navigate one's life and challenges all of which come together to become a guide for purposeful work and living. So who are we? Dr. Gerald Reed is a clinical psychologist in private practice in the Boston area, sport and performance psychologist. He's trained in neuropsychological assessments and is a professor, author, and songwriter. I myself am Alexis Reed, an educational therapist, executive function coach, educator, learning consultant, speaker, author, and have a passion for universal design for learning, executive function, and social-emotional learning. Gerald and I have had the privilege of being educated and trained at premier institutions and work alongside incredible mentors and experts in our fields, whom we look forward to introducing you to through this podcast. In our private practices, we've worked diligently and thoughtfully, often collaboratively, to best support our patients and clients aiming to connect the dots from a more holistic perspective. Additionally, we're both grateful to work with dedicated educators and therapists, as well as those in training, to support them in their professional development journeys. We're committed to inspiring hope through learning here in this podcast as we share similar messages across all that we do. Whether you're working to support others professionally, or a caregiver, learner, or just figuring things out for yourself, there'll be so much for you to explore along with us at Read Connected Podcast. However, please be advised that the content of this podcast is not intended to be a replacement for medical care, psychotherapy, or other services you may benefit from. Again, the purpose is to share concepts, ideas, strategies, and skills that you may consider relevant to you. And we encourage you to seek out your own professional support when needed and appropriate, be it a psychotherapist, a counselor, medical doctor, tutor, executive function coach, performance consultant, whatever it may be, we hope you find it. We look forward to all the explorations we share together. Check the show notes for more information and episode takeaways, subscribe to the podcast for future episodes, and you can follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast and Twitter at Read Connected. R-E-I-D connected. Thanks for coming along on this journey with us. And we offer that you be curious, be open, and be well. Welcome back to the Reconnected Podcast. Today we're here to talk about social anxiety. And I'm here with my brother, Dr. Gerald Reed, to dive a little bit deeper into the subject. Now, this is such an important topic to discuss, especially during this time of COVID where things have been shifted so much. There's been so much uncertainty. We had a long period of quarantine for some folks in different parts of the world. It was longer than others. 
And there's still this adjustment phase that I think everybody's feeling. So I want us to dive deep into discussing social anxiety. So to get us started, what is social anxiety? How would you define it with your students or clients? Yeah, social anxiety is is quite prevalent. So it is a topic that certainly comes up a lot in therapy. And so there's a distinction between what social anxiety is and what it isn't. And so there are concepts like introversion, being shy, kind of slow to warm up. And some people's personalities really are oriented towards that. You know, they may generally have more enjoyment, more energy from doing things by themselves. And some people are more extroverted. They really get a lot out of being with people and socializing. That's very energizing to them and so forth. And, you know, some people could be more on the more shy side. They take a bit more time to warm up to people, new situations. They need time to adjust, to get acclimated to new situations. Now, that's not necessarily social anxiety. Social anxiety really is this chronic fear and worry particularly around this idea of being judged by other people. That's really what the core of social anxiety is. And that worry and anxiety can manifest physiologically where people have a lot of physiological symptoms like uh, they can get panicky, they can get their heart racing, their mind can be kind of disoriented uh, in social situations. They can get stressed, tense, and, and stuff like that. So it's really built around this idea of being anxious and worried and having fear around judgment from others. And I can get more into detail about that. You know, it's so interesting because I've heard before, not only from clients, but also friends and people in my life that they're like, well, you know, I'm just socially anxious where they might just have a certain personality trait that leaves them a little more timid and shy than others. How do you help individuals differentiate between a personality trait and something that is considered an anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So the worry, we really want to get into detail about what that worry and anxiety might look like. And so some of the things I'll look for is what happens before, during, and after social situations, because social anxiety doesn't just happen when you're with people. It actually could occur before you're with somebody afterwards i'll give you some examples and and generally speaking this worry is biased towards the negative possibilities of things happening mm. um, kind of thinking the worst making these negative associations or conclusions about what other people are thinking about them and so there's a lot of what if what if this person is thinking this about me or that about me and so before a situation a person could really think excessively about what's going to happen in a social situation they may think to themselves oh am i wearing the right thing am i going to say the right thing what if i have nothing to talk about what are people going to think about me so this is really distressing to the person it's not just oh i'm kind of anxious about meeting someone or going on a first date because i don't know what to expect it's a lot of obsessive kind of worry and, and rumination about you know what might happen but not only what might happen but what are the consequences of what might happen in terms of what the other person thinks about them mm. and then when you're in the situation socially there's a lot wrapped up in the person's mind in terms of trying to figure out what the other person is thinking about them, how they might be judged, what might be going on. There's a lot of imagination that actually happens with people with social anxiety. They really have this vivid imagination about what they think might happen or what might be happening. And then lastly, after a social situation, there's a lot going on in terms of rumination. 
regret. Oh, maybe I said the wrong thing, or maybe that person took something the wrong way. Maybe they don't like me anymore. Maybe there's all these negative consequences from what I did. And, and so there's a lot of not just, oh, maybe I said the wrong thing, but it's even deeper than that. It's, oh, maybe I said the wrong thing and I'm never going to be friends with this person again, or they're forever going to judge me. And um, so there, there's a lot wrapped up in it. It's not just the what if, it's also, you know, what will happen as a consequence of these things they're worrying about. Mm. You know, a lot of the times when I work with different people, there's an important distinction between reflection and seeing how you did in the past in relation to what you want to do in the future, especially when we talk about performance and learning. But I think what you're saying here is that there's an obsessive component to it that leads to almost like crossing over to being social anxiety versus being maybe diligent or thoughtful or trying to motivate it to improve upon something in your life and how you interact with others. I think that's a great point because, um, you know, we always are looking for feedback and what other people think is actually feedback to your point. And feedback could be a good thing. It could be, oh, wait, you know, maybe I actually said something that was off-putting and maybe I need to be a little careful with my words or mm. maybe I can make a little tweak here and there in terms of what I'm doing in these interactions. But with social anxiety, it's it's really beyond that. And, and let me get into another part of what social anxiety is that there's a lot of avoidance tactics. Mm. And the avoidance really revolves around trying everything possible to prevent this possibility of being negatively judged. And as we know, we can't control what people think about us. But with social anxiety, we take on this idea that we can control what other people think about us. And this turns into things like they may not actually go to a party that they're invited to, right? Because they think, oh, what if I go? I might mess things up. I have to control that. I can't be uh, in a situation where I might not be at my best or maybe, you know, it's a situation I don't really like that much. So um, I'm not going to feel comfortable and therefore it's not going to work out and people are going to see me at my worst and I shouldn't go. Maybe they prepare excessively for something that's coming up and they kind of overly prepare for even like a presentation in school or, you know, what they're going to say on a date or what they're going to say when they go in a social situation with a friend. And that's avoidance of just the possibility of whatever might happen in dealing with that. Mm. You know, I think that's also such, and you could speak better to this than I, but it's such a core feature of anxiety in general is this sense of control, feeling like you don't have control maybe of other aspects of your life. So you have to potentially over control in that situation. And, mm -hmm. and you're talking specifically in a social situation. It made me think of, you know, when I go out and do workshops and talks, you know, around the country and around the world sometimes. I actually have found and figured out over time what works best for me. It's definitely much better for me to prepare and practice, but I also need to let it go. Otherwise, it becomes all-consuming. And when I show up, I actually am more in my own head than present in that moment to be able to deliver my best work. So it's so interesting to think about this. And I keep thinking also developmentally for younger individuals and kids as they're growing up because they start to notice more things socially as they get older, especially as you get into pre-adolescence and adolescence. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of this is sort of natural to be able to figure out perspective taking and understanding how your interactions might play out in mixed company or in different situations. But again, going back to that point that it becomes overwhelming when it becomes all you think of or it's all consuming in a situation. And I also want us to be careful 
to consider and, and discuss that some individuals who have a neurodevelopmental challenge or something else where they might have a really hard time perspective taking might need more explicit scripts and practice. But again, being mindful of going maybe a little too far where it becomes compulsive, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's such a good point. And uh, you know how much control works. You know, is it are you trying to overly control something versus maybe some people have no preparation for a situation socially, and that's also the other extreme of it. Maybe that's not good either mm-hmm. at times. So you know, I like your point. And yeah, we're always looking for feedback about how to develop. Socializing is part of natural development, so we do need feedback for sure. And you know, another example of this would be. You know, perfectionism could be a manifestation of social anxiety where it's kind of like an armor people put up to prevent the possibility of being vulnerable around others or being judged in a certain way. And that, you know, they'll do everything they can to avoid showing a quote unquote mistake or that they don't know something. I work with many people who are afraid of asking for help, afraid of uttering the words, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I talk to my patients about. Saying I don't know is pretty powerful, you know, if you're worried about it. I remember when I first started teaching and my students would ask me questions and, you know, there were certain things that I couldn't have a specific answer to and I felt like I needed to, felt like I had to have all the answers and that's just totally unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And the moment I uttered the words, I'm not sure about that, but I will get back to you. You know, I have to be more thoughtful about how I respond to that very good question you just had. And that was very freeing for me. And, you know, it's a kind of a simple example of that people have you know, much more personal and intense uh, examples of this, but, you know, it's kind of a, in relation to perfectionism and feeling like you have to have everything in order. I would argue it's actually not a simple situation at all. And it's an incredibly complex situation for so many people, you know, being in a role of some kind of authority, you want to make sure that you're projecting and sharing you know, the best sides of you, especially when people are coming to you for answers and supports. And I think so many adults in young people's lives fall into that, whether you're an educator or you're a parent, a mentor, a coach, whatever you might be Mm -hmm. in these situations where you feel like you need to always have the answers. And I think that actually perseverates this, you know, lack of vulnerability and saying, I don't know, or asking for help. Because if we're always answering and responding with some response, even if we're not always sure of the accurate information, number one, that's where we get into a lot of trouble, mm-hmm. I think, socially. Um, but number two, it, it sets a precedence that we always need to respond to everything. And mm-hmm. Jerry, you're such a great example and model for this to being thoughtful and patient and pausing before responding to not just jumping to saying something. And, and I've learned so much from just the way you naturally carry yourself, not just as a therapist or an educator or a professor, but also just as a person that you really take a step back and allow for yourself that think time. And as an educator, this is something that I promote for other educators to do all the time because it actually diffuses some of the anxiety around learners needing to jump in and share something just to share it versus giving yourself that time and space to process, think, and then respond. Organize your thoughts, right? Think about the executive function component of it, which is so important. that's That's a great point. I appreciate you mentioning that. We have to be open to learn and to grow. And, you know, you taught me that as well. You know, there's so many things to learn. So be open to it. Don't think I have to know everything. Mm-hmm. And so so there could be this expectation, 
wherever you are in society that there could be this mixed signal about, do I need to be confident? And what does that even mean to be confident? Does it mean that you have to know everything, you have to be bold, you have to assert yourself in all situations? Or does it mean that you have kind of that quiet confidence that you may not have to assert yourself all the time? Sometimes you can step back. You may not have to know everything. Maybe sometimes you can be open. And so sometimes people can feel conflicted. Wait, aren't I supposed to always feel confident and bold and assert myself? And and sometimes people can feel conflicted about how to reconcile that with this idea of vulnerability that could be confusing sometimes. Sometimes it takes conversations to really figure out how people want to be versus what society says they should be. And that depends on the person and the, and the circumstances and the context. Sometimes you do want to be confident and bold and assertive. And sometimes you do want to step back. It may not be you know, one size fits all for all situations and for all people. I think it is so tricky and complicated. And especially in the media, we get such mixed signals as to what it is to be powerful or to be successful. And this is something I explore a lot with the clients I work with. Like, what does success mean for you? Because it might be different for every single person. And, you know, if we just are falling into the trap of what media is portraying as being successful or being confident or whatever the case may be, whatever you're looking to figure out for yourself as you're forming your own identity in person, I think it's really important to be mindful of different social cues, different social settings and across contexts, what makes the most sense for you. And mm-hmm. this this goes back to where we started and the blurred lines between personality and social anxiety. And I want to go back to this piece of, you know, how common is social anxiety, especially now, like I said at the beginning, coming out of COVID, you know, where there's there's a realistic fear of being sick or when you're around other people or different perceptions of what people might think of how you're navigating through the world with different precautions that some people feel more comfortable with versus others. And, you know, being comfortable in your own decisions and space, I think plays a big role in social anxiety too. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, this, how common social anxiety really is, especially right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It is quite common. And before I answer how common it is, I just want to mention that you're making a very good point. Feeling comfortable with who you are, if you don't, that could certainly be a contributor to social anxiety. Mm. And as you mentioned, some people could be more introverted or this or that. Everybody's different in their own way. And if you feel like you have to change yourself or be different all the time or in different situations where it just creates all this anxiety about not just being yourself, Mm. I've seen that that can be a, a big contributor to social anxiety. And a lot of the therapy revolves around getting to know who you are and feeling, you know, empowered to like who you are and to feel comfortable in your skin with with other people. Sometimes it's the hardest thing for people. No doubt. You know, just to kind of shed shed that exterior armor that you were discussing and describing before and just being. It's a really difficult thing sometimes. No doubt. Yeah. Being present, you know, which kind of gets into the whole idea of being present. I think the more comfortable people are within themselves, the more present they are. Mm. I think that's a natural side effect of it, which is great for athletes, by the way, who are trying to perform at a high level. I would suggest that the athletes who are most present learn how to be more secure within themselves and also competent in what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we will discuss this many more times throughout the life of this podcast, um, but I'm glad you brought it up and pointed that out because again, that plays into this whole idea of social anxiety on so many levels and it can manifest in different ways across context too. 
there's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, how many times do I hear people say, I wish I can be like that. I wish I can be like this person. I wish I can be like that. That really takes away from appreciating who they are. And there's a difference between being inspired, you know, by another person versus comparing yourself and judging yourself. There's nothing wrong with looking at someone and say, I really admire that quality. I admire that. And maybe I want to embrace some of that within myself. But to say, I hate myself because I'm not like that, that's very different. Mm. And so you asked how prevalent it is. And so the research really suggests it's about 8.4% to 15%. At some point in people's lifetime, they're going to have social anxiety. That's clinically significant, meaning that it's really impairing their life. It's really highly distressing, having an impact on their well-being and their functioning. Mm. So it's pretty prevalent. And there are some suggestions that it actually starts in early adolescence. That's when you're going to see it for people. That's when it really starts developing. You can imagine why. You mentioned it before when you're middle school age, people start to figure out, wait, what's going on here socially? Mm -hmm. You know, who are the cool people? Who Who's belonging to what group? What's the hierarchy? And this is actually the reason why bullying is so prevalent. It's the highest. It peaks in middle school for this very reason, as far as I'm concerned and what people think in the, in the literature. So early adolescence is where you want to kind of look for the early signs, you know, people becoming more self-conscious, worrying about their identity, and that can manifest as social anxiety. You know, during middle school, it's, it's, also the time where a lot of young people are trying on different identities and trying to figure out who they are, what they like, who they like to be around, right? There's so many shifts and changes. I'll, I'll bring it back to when we were in middle school. I remember that I used to think I was the coolest during the summertime and spraying sun in my hair just because I wanted to try on something different. And now we have such a different version of that for young people. But, you know, everybody can think back to that time in their life and try to notice how they might have tried on different things that they thought were cool until they arrived at what was most important to them when they started to really understand their values and what's important to them in their lives. It's so fascinating to think about and look at these different phases and chapters in life and in development. Definitely. Yep. That is part of development as an adolescent and even beyond, you know, you want to try to explore what you like about yourself, different ways of being, different hobbies, interests, values that can evolve over time for sure. Hair colors. You never know. Yep. That's right. You know, it takes time and, and you know, that evolves over time and there's nothing wrong with that. The interesting part, as you're, as I was looking through the literature, is that social anxiety as a mental health condition actually coincides highly with a lot of other mental health challenges and conditions like depression, uh, issues with behavior, ADHD, and so forth. The reason for that you can think of is, well, if people are socially anxious, they may have a hard time connecting with people. They may have a hard time in relationships because it is relational in nature. And so let's say a person becomes depressed because they're having a hard time connecting with people. That's the natural consequence of having a hard time connecting is, is becoming depressed. And also vice versa, as other people have other mental health issues or conditions, let's say they have depression, trauma, even things like ADHD, where they're having a hard time focusing or with their organization and they have a hard time with school even, or even if they're bullied, stuff like that, they can actually begin to feel unacceptable, unlovable, kind of not really have a clear sense of self that feels good to them. And that in turn can create social anxiety. So it really could be bi-directional. But 
something to consider for the therapists out there is really pay attention. You know, social anxiety could be a kind of a core feature of a lot of the people you work with uh, for different reasons and to look for the subtleties of it. Because like I said before, it could be very subtle. People may not really even admit that they're socially anxious or even be aware that it's happening. Maybe that just becomes normal to experience social situations the way they do because they just adapted or you know, overcompensated or just avoided altogether. And maybe they even identify as being a loner or identify as being someone who doesn't want to be with other people. And that is the way to compensate for that. And, you know, maybe in some ways that's adaptive and maybe some ways that's unhealthy. But, you know, it's important to be aware of these subtleties. I'm going to pivot back to this idea of individuals with ADHD or learning disabilities also exhibiting social anxiety characteristics, because I think this is a really important piece of things that a lot of times young learners, especially if they're still trying to figure out themselves as learners, especially those with any kind of focus issues or behavioral concerns that might come from a lack of inhibition, being able to press pause, like those who might be a little bit more fidgety or jittery or needing to move their bodies, you know, they might not have always gotten the most positive feedback, especially in a learning environment, which might have impacted their confidence as learners, but also as social beings in this classroom of peers. So those who might have challenges, either attentionally, behaviorally, or with their own learning, they might already feel this lack of confidence in themselves, which makes them perceive that their peers are noticing whether they are or are not. This can create some additional anxieties around social interactions when they enter the classroom, even before they sit down, before anything happens or comes up, they might already be feeling this social anxiety that could come up and interfere with the way they navigate through their day. So as learners showing up, we want to again, be in tune with what might be going on for them, helping them to build their skills and their confidence. So on a performance side of things, they feel a little bit more comfortable navigating through situations, especially in the collaboration and in the audience and company of their peers. Yeah. And think about this more broadly too. So if someone has social anxiety, they're afraid to ask for help because they're afraid to admit they don't know something or or so forth. Actually, the more they can overcome that, the more help they get, the more competent they can get at something because they're improving their skills Mm -hmm. and their abilities. And by nature, that could build some confidence in themselves, which could in turn bidirectionally reduce their social anxiety. So it's a very good point you're making. Totally. And I know you probably do this a lot in your practice to have your clients do exposures, just asking for what they need and asking for help. And I do the same, right? Can you use me as an example to practice and go back and say, if you're unsure of something What are some ways that you can get what you need? What are some things that you might need in these different situations and how could you ask? So that's where some of the practice comes in that can be beneficial and helpful as long as it doesn't become the center of an individual's universe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we're socially anxious about something in specific, we think that everybody's always thinking about that because we're always thinking about it. Mm -hmm. If we're conscious, self-conscious about something, we think that the other people are constantly thinking about this one thing. And so this brings in a whole nother element that kind of takes us in a bit of a different direction, but it's still parallel, is sometimes people may really truly be judged. You know, there's different 
aspects of society where people could be discriminated against or have you know bias against some characteristics that they have and that's the reality of life is that people have biases people have judgments that they actually do make towards people towards groups of people and this is a whole nother element that really gets into what do you do about that and the other part of social anxiety that's a bit of a nuance too is culture because social anxiety could manifest a bit different in different cultures actually so America is generally has the individualistic ideology, but not everybody subscribes to that. Some people have a more collective ideology about the world and about life where it's the collective that matters. It's not the individual so much. And so some people from different cultures can actually have social anxiety, not about being judged, but actually about disrupting the group by what they're doing. And they have a lot of anxiety that they might make the wrong move or do something that disrupts the group and the harmony of the group. And so another reason why this whole idea of social anxiety can manifest in different ways, depending on the person. So you really want to get to know the person that you're working with in therapy. Totally. And the person and the context and, you know, whether you're an educator or a therapist or a caregiver, just recognizing and acknowledging all these different components that might be interacting with the individuals that you are working with or you are interacting with. It's so important to hold that in mind. Really great point. So tell us something interesting about social anxiety that listeners may not know. And maybe we've already covered a bunch of this, but I wonder if there's something else that really stands out to you that you even had an aha moment about when you learned about or did research on. So there's this research that's been done at a San Diego State University, I believe, where trying to identify the parallel between social media and mental health challenges. And one of the challenges that has arisen, mental health really has gotten worse over the years and over the past few decades, especially for youth. And one of the parallels that was found was roughly 2012 or so, I believe, where there was an immense increase in children who had smartphones it kind of reached that threshold. It was over half, over half of the children of society in America had smartphones. And at the same time, you can see a spike in mental health problems. And so, you know, more globally, the question is, how does social media affect mental health and social anxiety specifically in relative to this episode? People are going to have a lot of opinions about that. And, you know, everybody listening to here is probably going to have an opinion about that and think about it. And, from my perspective, I think one of the things that has happened is it's created a very controlled, structured, well-crafted version of how you're presenting yourself. And so it really kind of feeds into this fear. If you already have social anxiety, it may make it worse. If you don't have it, it actually might, it might increase it because it really feeds into this fear that you have to present yourself a certain way because by nature, social media, you have feedback from people telling you if you like or don't like something that you're saying, people may make comments and so forth. It is a way of interacting that's similar to being in person, but it's a different version of it because you're, it's a very controlled and structured setting. And so if you think about social anxiety, wanting to control the uncontrollable, you can't really dictate what people think about you, but we can try to. And social media is kind of like a tool that people with social anxiety can use where they're trying to control what people think about them by how and what they're posting. Another point that I'd like to make is that, you know, before there was social media, there was in-person interactions that were more prevalent and people would interact. And in-person is unstructured. There's more uncertainty. It's more fluid. 
And if you don't have experience with that, in my opinion, I think you lose confidence and trust that you can interact with people in that type of environment, that context where it's open, it's fluid, you don't know what to expect, anything can happen. Not that that's not the case in social media, you really don't know what's going to happen in social media either. But there's immediate feedback, things are happening in real time. So I think that having less experience, having that more unstructured way of relating with people, I think makes it harder to do that, which can create more anxiety. You know, in life in general has become more structured with sports and extracurriculars and kids having different routines in their life. There's less of that kind of unstructured play where you really can develop your ability to be free, creative, spontaneous, feel more comfortable in that type of way, relate with people in a different way. And, and maybe there's missed opportunities for learning how to relate in a different way. And so those are some of the thoughts I have about that. It, it's so interesting because I actually think that people gravitate towards social media or even like collaborative video gaming to seek out a sense of community, right? Even if they are feeling socially anxious, they feel like that's a way to be connected while being disconnected in some way. Because I think a lot of individuals who may experience social anxiety, they might feel a little bit more comfortable navigating through different situations in the digital world in some way. And I think there's some really big benefits to giving yourself space and time to organize your thoughts, plan out what you want to contribute and say. And they're getting immediate feedback that we don't always get in life, right? Whether you're in the classroom or you're in your relationships in your family or with friendships, you might not get that kind of feedback. People aren't going to give you a thumbs up every time you say something great. But in that context, people tend to feel a little bit more safe sharing information. But at the same time, there's this other side of it where there's really no filter because you can't see an individual's facial expressions when you react in a negative way or when you share something that maybe doesn't jive with another person or it's uh, an opinion that might seem or feel controversial. So it's really tricky to navigate these different situations. And I don't know that there's research out there to differentiate between social anxiety in a digital world versus in the physical world and in real life, it'll be very interesting to see how things shift and change over time. And the research that you're referring to back in 2012 was before the pandemic in 2020, where everybody was kind of forced to be in these virtual realities and forced to be online to be able to connect and have communities and thinking about how that impacts things. And then the transition back to, you know, being in the workforce, going back to the office, going back to the classroom, what that means and how it's shaped, you know, different expressions of ourselves, both our personalities or perhaps this manifestation of social anxiety in different situations. So I've just tackled a lot of different things. And I, I think it all comes back to my big question that I'm sure all the listeners are really curious about. It's when you are experiencing social anxiety, when there is this fear that's all consuming about being in social situations, that's impacting the way in which you navigate your life. What can you do to help yourself in these situations? I mean, I would assume first and foremost, you know, reach out to a therapist and somebody who's been educated and treating and supporting individuals with social anxiety. But what else would you suggest to people, Jer? Yeah. 
And I just want to validate what you just said. I think there are pros and cons to most things in in life. And so with social media and virtual uh, ways of communication, there, there's a lot of benefits that people can glean. You mentioned a number of them. And there's also downsides depending on the person, the context, and and so forth. So what do we do when we're dealing with social anxiety? And I'm coming from the perspective of you know someone who works with individuals many who who do experience this and again as you mentioned you do if you're struggling with this certainly seek out a therapist and work on these things so that you can have guidance and professional support as you're as you're working through this some of the things we look at from a cognitive behavioral therapy standpoint is building awareness you know a lot of times when people are anxious it's like almost like a hurricane that's going through you everything is overwhelming and you really want to slow down to kind of break apart the thought patterns that are actually happening behind the scenes that you may not be aware of because anxiety comes from somewhere. Something triggers it and it manifests and it kind of overwhelms you. But you really want to work backwards and to see how things develop over time. And so some of the things you want to ask yourself and to reflect on are, number one, what are you really concerned about? That's a broad primary question. What is it that you're concerned about happening? And in your social situation with this person, you know, who, who are you concerned about something happening with specifically? You know, sometimes people have this one person in mind. They're like, wow, this person really, their opinion matters so much to me. I, I have to really be careful with this person and put them on a pedestal. And it's this really hyper fixation. It could be a number of people. But you really want to ask yourself, what are you concerned about happening relative to social situations and other people? You might want to ask other questions like who you're comparing yourself to, what standard, what expectations. Expectations is such a big part of CBT where you really want to understand what are the expectations? Where did the expectation come from? What do you think about that expectation? How do you feel about it? Is it meaningful to you? Do you care about it? Does it have pros and cons if you hold on to this expectation over time? Is it unreasonable in some ways? In what ways is it reasonable? So you really want to kind of analyze the expectations that you hold about you know, what people expect of you, what you expect of yourself. You also want to get into imagination. People with social anxiety have a pretty vivid imagination, as I mentioned, about these negative things happening, many of which don't actually happen, but kind of the imagination that happens before, during, and after situations socially. Can I pause for that too? Because I think that's really important because what one person perceives as creating anxiety for them might be different than other people around them, which might cause some conflict, perhaps, if you're feeling or anticipating that something's going to cause anxiety in a social situation and somebody else says, oh, you'll be fine. It's no big deal. This is nothing to be anxious about. I think validating the fact that certain people might experience different things at different points in time is really powerful and important too. So not only what you can do as an individual who experiences social anxiety, but also as somebody around an individual that might be experiencing social anxiety, just recognizing that your perspective, whether it's accurate or not, is valid and important to acknowledge and recognize. Yeah. I mentioned this in the in the first episode about therapy. A lot of therapy is helping people to label and, and to express what's going through them internally. And that could be therapeutic in of itself. So, you know, if someone is socially anxious, 
just telling them, you know, get over it or stop worrying about that may not help. Maybe it does help some people in different ways in certain circumstances, but, you know, sometimes people may just need that push to get over the hump. But a lot of times you really want them to think through it, not in the terms of like obsessing over their thoughts, because that could also be a slippery slope, but to really kind of be more critical thinking about their thoughts, you know, determining different ways of, um, figuring out what the evidence is for and against what they're worrying about, thinking more broadly, being more flexible in how they're thinking about their expectations, their judgments, uh, their assumptions, and so forth. As you all can imagine, if you've listened to anything we've talked about so far around executive function, you will have maybe had a little radar pop out at you and when Jerry was saying this, because if an individual is maybe still developing executive function skills to organize, to be cognitively flexible, this might be difficult for them. It might actually make it more difficult to work through and problem solve and critically think about a situation. So that might complicate things. And this is where I often say that, you know, the mental health therapeutic side goes hand in hand with developing executive function skills and, and vice versa. So it's it's really so important to be mindful and sometimes give that scaffold or assist to say, hey, look, what information do you have? Let me help you organize it so we can figure out what the best line of defense is, what the best approach is, what the next best step could be. And sometimes people just need to adjust to new situations, new relationships. Mm. If we're not familiar with something, we can tend to assume the worst. That's kind of human nature. And so, you know, maybe you're just not used to being in a relationship or being in a relationship with this particular person. You just need time. Maybe you need feedback. Maybe you need conversations with that person to get used to, you know, what to expect in this situation rather than just kind of assuming the worst. And I think that's actually a a good opportunity to bring it back, not to obsess over COVID myself, but to also think about how these protocols are constantly shift and changing and how we show up to different events and things in our lives. And I, I'm thinking about concert events, right? There's different protocols with what you can bring and what you need to do. And sometimes those rules are shifting and changing. And that's actually the beauty of the internet. I think you can actually do a little bit of research first to preview what you might expect in different situations. And and I think that could be a healthy thing to do, both for young children or for yourself if you're experiencing some of these symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yep. As long as it doesn't become, like you said, an obsession where you're, you're seeking to control things you can't control, but certainly information is helpful. It helps you to prepare, helps you to get familiar and acclimate, previewing different situations. And just getting, you know, and and talking to people about your experiences and not holding it in. Because when you hold it in, you may assume the worst. I've had a lot of people say, you know, I've never talked to anybody about this. It's nice to have a different perspective just to get out of my head. Mm. One other thing that I wanted to mention when you were saying that if, if somebody who's experiencing social anxiety is told, oh, it's fine, you'll be okay, don't think about it. It's almost like the elephant in the room, right? In very simplistic terms, it's like, don't think about that elephant that's over there. You don't really see it. You're going to think about the elephant. That's going to be like the only thing on your mind. And in fact, it's physically so huge, you can't not think about it because it's right in front of you. So just considering that everybody's process and everybody's experience is a little bit different, and that's okay. I think that's actually... Diversity and variability is what brings beauty to life when we can not only understand it, but at least be curious enough to ask good questions to better understand people's perspectives and experiences so we can just be respectful and helpful 
along the way, whether we are explicitly doing that as an educator or a therapist, caregiver, friend, mentor, coach, or, you know, just in life in general, I think that would alleviate a lot of the stressors and anxieties in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And look at a fundamental level in my experience and my perspective is that, again, you might be judged and, you know, people can be cruel too. you know, bad things could happen. People could judge you. And like, that's in some ways part of life. And so social anxiety, there could be part of it that is actually accurate. Yeah. Somebody could actually judge you for something. And so, you know, a big part of it is at a fundamental level, thinking about two things, in my opinion, one is what are your priorities when it comes to relationships? And I'll ask questions like, are you striving to be liked by everybody? Or are you striving to connect with people that you want to connect with who you feel com- you feel like mesh with you, click with you, you feel like they appreciate you, you appreciate them, it's meaningful. You know, are you trying to make yourself a look a certain way or are you trying to learn how to be comfortable in the way that you want to be, to be yourself, to live life the way that you want to live? And, you know, ask yourself, is there an alternative to what my priorities have been? And that could be, you know, life-changing when you kind of shift from this idea that you need to have everyone validate you or care about you or, or think about you in a certain way to, you know, being comfortable with yourself and finding things that are meaningful to you, relationships included. And, and by doing so, you can kind of have a little bit of armor against that possibility that you're afraid of that people might judge you or not like you because it's inevitable. You know, nobody could be liked by everybody. That would be weird in the first place. Everybody's too different. You know, people have preferences at a fundamental level that some people like things, some people don't like things. That's normal. That's natural. And also, you know, it could come to the extreme where people truly are mean and cruel. But, um, you know, part of this is feeling secure and feeling the people who really know you and, and appreciating yourself for who you are. I think that's the beauty of getting older is you start to realize that you have choices in the types of people that you have in your life most of the time, right? And as you get older, you can start to recognize too, sort of naturally and with experience that there's different people that might come into your life for different seasons and different reasons, right? The age old saying, you know, sometimes people come into your life for a moment for a reason or a season. And and I think that's really important to hold on to and to share that with young people that just because I, I'm thinking to like a little kid, like a four or five year old who's like, this is my best friend in the whole world until they meet more friends. And they're like, oh, wait, no, this is my best friend. That's no longer my best friend. And the other kid's like, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> and how easily we can connect and reconnect with old friends, new friends, different people in our lives, again, that might bring things into your world that you might need at that moment. And sometimes it's okay to go with the ebbs and flows and not get too hooked on one thing, one person, one expectation. Right. And again, not trying to control everything. And another big part of therapy that I try to do with social anxiety is to go with the process, be present with interacting with people, with relationships. Don't try to control the way it's going or what you want to, to be. That doesn't mean you don't take the initiative and and try to build a relationship and you know try to make positive things happen. But there could be an obsession to it that becomes maladaptive. And so, you know, be present when you're talking to someone. You know, it's like the athlete. Pay attention to what's in front of you. Don't just assume you're trying to you know get the big shot at the end of the game. You're gonna take the bad shot because you don't see that there's a pass that's perfect for you that would win the game. 
you know, pay attention to what's actually happening and be open to it. And you might actually make a connection with someone, have a good laugh, find a commonality that you connect over, bond in some way. And that could evolve. Just be patient. You know, sometimes people with social anxiety, they're not really patient because they catastrophize little things that happen. Oh, this little thing happened, or it looked like they were not pleased with me for that. And that ruined everything. This whole interaction's you know, going to waste and, and I'll never talk to this person again or things become catastrophic. So really be patient and be present and let things evolve. And like you said, let relationships evolve too. You know, you may not be friends with someone for a period of time and then maybe, you know, some things change in their life or your life or they're, you know, something that they care about changes and you reconnect or something like that. Um, that's, that's normal part of life. And, you know, don't take things personally too much when it comes to, the way relationships can shake out sometimes because, you know, it's not always personal. Another question I have that might be helpful for our listeners is when people are feeling or exhibiting symptoms of social anxiety, is there perhaps something else going on outside of just the social discomfort that they're experiencing? And what would you suggest people do in a situation like that? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Back to what I said in the, in the beginning of the episode was, Sometimes social anxiety leads to other problems, and sometimes other problems can lead to social anxiety. So people can go through very hard times in their life. Their life could turn into shambles or, you know, things are just confusing or there's a lot of chaos in their life. And that could be very disorienting where when you're with people, you're just not present, you're just not yourself, and you can become really anxious or you feel like you don't really like the way that you are or the way your life has become. And what happens is you can project that onto the other person. You may not like yourself and therefore think other people don't like you as well. You know, whatever you're thinking could be what you expect other people to think about you, even if it's not the case. And so sometimes therapy, you got to work the other way around. Instead of just addressing the social anxiety, you got to help people to kind of get their life together, find more meaning in their life, um, solve the problems that have been left unsolved you know, figure out how to get their life together so that they feel a bit more secure in how their life is going. And therefore, they can feel a little bit more secure when they're with other people. Mm, great point. So I often will work with individuals who have had experiences in the past that they may have tried to exert their voice in some way, and they don't get the outcome that they're expecting. In these types of situations, whether it be in a classroom or at work or at home, what would you suggest an individual might do or what would your approach be to support them? So one part of this with cognitive behavioral therapy is exposure therapy, where the approach is to slowly but surely try something new that you might be avoiding. And the theory behind it is that you can learn what really happens when you do something that you've been avoiding. And did the thing that you're worried about happen? And even if it did happen, is it really a catastrophe in the way that you're expecting it to be? And you really get used to the reality of what happens when you do the things that you avoid. And that could build some positive momentum, an upward spiral towards things getting better, build confidence in your ability to do things, and also gain more of an idea about what really happens in your memory bank so that the next time you're in that situation, you can feel a bit more more at ease and less anxious. A lot of research has been done to understand that process. And so, you know, for a kid in school who's not asking for help or is not raising their hand to speak up something that they know, Alexis, you always say, you know, there's a lot of students who have so much to say that are like great ideas, great perspectives, but they're too anxious or shy to, to, to speak up. And, you know, what a shame that is for their voices not to be heard. And that's also why you said that 
computers, technology, and media could be a useful way for people to get their voice out. So everybody's heard because the more voices sometimes is the better with, you know, people who can really share something very important, insightful, and useful. And so the exposure would be to practice doing these things, to ask for help and to realize that it's okay and realize that people might actually want to help you. And also to learn how to deal with the consequences that might come from doing something. So let's say you ask for help and the person doesn't want to help you, or maybe that they're kind of dismissive. And then you might think to yourself, okay, my fear actually did happen. What now? What do I do now? What do I learn from that? And perhaps maybe next time you take a bit of a different approach, maybe you ask for help in a different way or at a different time or from a different person to get what you need. Maybe it's not an end all be all that the situation didn't work out. Therefore, I'll never ask for help again. You know, people with anxiety tend to generalize one bad experience to all bad experiences. And therapy is a lot of trying to not generalize those situations so that you expect all situations that are similar to go the same way. And so that's, that's a bit of it. And also trying to, you know, not take things too personally when stuff like that does happen. So exposure therapy can happen in a lot of different ways, you know, with other different types of manifestations of social anxiety. That's just one example. Now I'm going to ask you a question that might be a big question, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking the same thing. If you're an educator, a coach, a caregiver working with young people, what would your suggestion be? obviously not to become a therapist or an exposure coach in a situation, in context, but what would your suggestion be to them to support individuals who might be experiencing social anxiety? Well, something I always say, say to my classes, my patients is, look, everyone's insecure. You're a human being, right? You're going to be insecure because we're vulnerable, we're flawed, we we're vulnerable human beings. Everybody on earth is vulnerable. And so by nature, we're going to be feeling insecure in some way, obviously to different degrees in different situations, but really normalize that. Everyone's insecure about something. There's nobody on earth that doesn't have some sort of insecurity or, or anxiety about what people think. Even people at the highest levels, even famous people, people at the highest level in their professions, right? You put them in a certain situation and they're going to be anxious about what other people think. It just depends on where they are and who they're with. And so really normalizing that is really important. Alexis, you do a good job. You know, you talk about when you're teaching or presenting that you try to, and with your your clients, you try to be vulnerable to say, hey, you model it for them. You model, hey, there was something I didn't know and I admitted it and then I went back and I tried to figure out what I needed and to take a deep breath and to just realize that that's happening. Sometimes modeling is a very important thing, especially for young people who look up to you got to recognize what your power is when people look up to you and to be a good model for them. And so I would say that normalize it, be a good model and really validate what the person's thinking. Validation doesn't mean that you just kind of give in to their fears and say, okay, I understand, you know, don't worry about that. You don't have to try something that's scary to you, but it's aligning with them to say, I understand where you're coming from. Let's figure out what to do about that. And it may take time for people to overcome their social anxiety. It may take a lot of time, but there's a process and you want to try to align with that, what that process looks like so that they don't just give up on the process. You know, that's not a great thing when people just kind of feel like, Oh, there's nothing I can do and it's never going to get better. There's always a process and you want to try to meet them where they're at and really try to kind of find different ways of helping people. And there could be different versions of it, right? Maybe someone who they really respect and admire says something to that person that something really clicks in them. They're like, wow, you know, I, I really like what they said. It really resonates with me. 
And so, you know, recognize that that could happen and really um, try to empower people to feel good about themselves. I love that. Thank you. And oftentimes when I work with learners, I always get this great privilege to learn more about their history as learners, right? Across the spectrum from being a young learner to being in middle school, high school, and wherever else they're in a learning context. And most of the times those who experience a lot of anxiety and sometimes depression will say to me, I wish somebody just asked me what was going on and just checked in. And sometimes that is the most powerful tool is just be curious. When you notice something's off with an individual, just check in with them and see how they are. Not that you need to solve a problem or give them therapy, but just to show that you care. And sometimes that little action and sign of support is more powerful than anything else in a moment and might even give them an opportunity to seek out additional support that they might benefit from. And hopefully this podcast and this episode especially does that for you or for somebody you know. And we are grateful for you to be listening and we hope you all are well and we look forward to future episodes moving forward. Thanks, Lex. Great conversation. Thanks for tuning in to the Read Connected podcast. Please remember that this is a podcast intended to educate and share ideas and is not a substitute for professional care that may be beneficial to you at different points of your life. If you're in need of support, please contact your primary care physician, educational institution, or support staff at your place of employment to seek out referrals for what may be most helpful for you. Ideas shared here have been shaped by many years of training, incredible mentors, research, evidence-based practices, and our work with individuals over the years, but is not intended to represent the opinions of those we work with or are affiliated with. The Reed Connected podcast is hosted by Alexis Reed and Dr. Gerald Reed, is produced by Lauren Biza, our communications and marketing coordinator is Colin Faley, and original music is written and recorded by Gerald Reed. If you want to follow along on this journey with us, the Read Connected podcast will be releasing a new episode every two weeks each season. So please subscribe for updates and notifications. And you can follow us on Instagram at Read Connected Podcast and Twitter at Read Connected. R-E-I-D Connected. We're grateful for you joining us and look forward to future episodes. In the meantime, be curious, be open, be well. Be well.